Hello and welcome to another episode of the Trading Desk Podcast. My name is Joshua Thanos and today I will be your host for the second episode of the three-episode trilogy on a buying guide to watches. So the first episode was the beginner's guide to buying watches. This will be the collector's guide to buying watches, uh, which will be a little bit more advanced. We'll talk about a few different topics um, that were not covered in the first iteration. So in the first, uh, as a as a review, the, the beginner's guide to buying watches is more about what watch should you buy as your first watch, uh, some terms, industry terms, things to look out for, understanding what new, pre-owned, or used, uh, gray market, all those things are. Going and looking at some of the sellers when you're looking to buy a watch, uh, different options that you might have, and uh, just understanding watches in general, right? So now we're going to fast forward. We'll say it's three to five years later. You Maybe you have three or five watches. Most collectors are buying realistically one watch a year on average. I mean, I'm not the average collector. I have about 40 watches and I certainly haven't been collecting for 40 years. And, and there are guys who are kind of in that range. But in general, the rule is race, uh, basically one watch a year. So say you have three or five watches, you understand the watches themselves, um, but now you have some choices to make. So that was a, a brief little intro. Uh, before we get started, I want to do the customary wrist check because that's always very important. Um, today, uh, I am wearing on the wrist. My wrist check will be for a 42 millimeter CMAT or Speedmaster Professional Omega. Um, this is the reference 311.30.42.30.01.005. So you can go ahead and check out. I'll post the, the reference in the description, but this is a 42 millimeter manual wine, full stainless steel um, Omega speed watch. This would be the moon watch. This has the Hesalite crystal, which means it can be scratched very easily, but it can also be polished and replaced very easily. Uh, manual wind, uh, movement. It's going to have a chronograph. Um, it's a great watch to have in your collection. Uh, a lot of guys probably in the, uh, who are listening to this podcast probably have owned or, uh, or do own the watch. Um, like my buddy Jason says, it's a great watch to buy, but you can't wait to to sell it or trade it. I can understand that though. I've had mine for going on two years now almost. And um, it is a, uh, it's a great watch. I, I have thought about trading or selling this watch many times, but I tend to want to keep it in the collection. So um, if I do trade this, it'll probably be towards a dark side variant uh, Speedmaster. So I'll still have a Speedmaster in the collection, but I'll get a, a little bit more functionality and a little bit higher price point. It's a great watch. When I bought it, I think I paid $2,500 for it. And now that it's been discontinued, because this is the discontinued variant of the watch, um, it's gone up in value. I think it's, I can probably sell it for four or $5,000 now, which is always nice. Uh, you know, wasn't my intention when I bought the watch, but um, is always a, uh, you know, a pleasant surprise when a watch goes up in value. Full stainless steel bracelet. It has the, um, uh, the double pusher, uh, the plant release, which is nice. It feels really, really sturdy on the wrist doesn't feel like it's ever just going to pop off some of the other watches. Like for example, Rolex that uses tension to keep the, the bracelet on. I know that it, that it's not going to pop off, but in the back of my head, I'm always worried about things like that. So having the little, um, the double pushers on the side of the clasp is nice. Um, and, uh, yeah, overall great watch. Uh, you know, it's a good watch for those who, um, who don't have a large wrist also, right. It doesn't wear overly large. It's a 42, but it doesn't wear as big as, say, like a 42 Explorer 2 um, from Rolex uh, or a, a Skydweller for that matter also, right? Same size, but wears much smaller and, and much more reasonable on the wrist. Handsome watch. Tend to get a lot of comments too. So this is a great watch to buy as your first watch or to have in your in the beginning of your watch collecting journey to have that watch in your um, in your collection. So, so yeah, that's what I got on the wrist. Um, very enjoyable watch, though you can't take it in the pool. Not water resistant, so... One of the reasons why it's not a great everyday wear. All right, so moving on. So let's get back to the to the main topic because we do have a lot to cover here. Um, so now, painting the picture, you're three to five years into your uh, collecting journey. You Now you totally understand the watches for the most part, right? You know what in-house movement is as opposed to a manufacturer uh, or a um, uh, like an ETA movement or a mass manufacturer 
movement. You might know who some of the players in the industry are. Maybe you watch all of Tim's videos. So now you're, you know, a reasonably educated watch buyer and, but you still haven't sold or traded a watch yet. Um, and you haven't serviced any of your watches. So that's what we're going to focus on today. It's going to be the trading and the selling aspect of watch collecting and also the servicing, right? Cause that's right around the time of three to five year um, interval. If you bought those watches new, or even if you, you bought them pre-owned and at that time they were serviced, this is what most manufacturers recommend to have uh, as a service intervals, three to five years. So it's something you're going to be dealing with that you might've not thought about before. So let's start with the selling and trading because that's a much bigger topic. Um, there's a lot that goes into that. So, um, you know, a few things that I take into account whenever I'm talking to uh, a collector in terms of, you know, what their options are, right? So if, if say you have five watches in your collection, you find yourself only wearing, say, three of those all the time and two of them have possibly gone up in value. And so, so you might want to trade those toward another watch or maybe use those funds towards something else, another investment or, or whatever it may be, right? So you've decided to start exploring the sale or the trade of your watches. Well, what are your options? So you can um, find an online dealer, a professional seller like uh, like myself uh, through watchbox.com um, or our parent company, Godbert Jewelers in Philadelphia. Uh, you can find there's companies called Luxury Bazaar, Bob's Watches, Crown & Caliber, Watch Finder, uh, Delray Watch, um, European Watch. There's There are... Uh, as many options as you can think of in terms of selling watches online, there, there exists, right? There's a ton of watch buyers online. Some of them are, are more prevalent than others. Some of them are larger than others. Some of them might be, you know, might pay you more than others. So what are the factors in, in determining who you should deal with? Say, if you don't have a local option, which I'll kind of discuss separately in the next bit here. So online dealers um, like ourselves are going to be, you know, there's going to be a lot of them. There's going to be different sizes. It's hard to tell if, uh, you know, how large of an operation somebody is uh, online, right? Because, you know, you have a nice website, you have a nice website, right? So um, Watchbox is generally accepted as the largest player in this market. You know, we have um, we have a huge inventory and that's one thing you want to pay attention to, right? So in my opinion, I'd say logically the seller that has the largest inventory is probably going to be someone who pays fair market value for a watch, right? You can't have 5,000 watches um, for sale and just be lowballing people left and right, right? So that's that that does make some sense to me, right? Um, and there are other uh, other sellers that aren't quite as large as, uh, as our platform who are also paying for fair market value. Maybe they just don't, maybe they're limited by the amount of funds they have or whatnot, right? So there's guys like Luxury Bazaar, my buddy Roman, who I think, I could be wrong, but he's, probably keeps around a thousand watches in, in stock at any given time, which is quite a, quite a large inventory. Um, and then you have smaller guys like the Bob's watches and the European watches uh, of the, of the world who are probably having a few hundred watches in inventory at any given time. And they might specialize in certain models. So, you know, if you try to sell them your Panerai, you might get what you feel like as a low ball offer because they're not, they don't have a big, um, a big customer base to buy a Panerai. But if you sell them, you know, a Rolex or a Longa or whatever it may be, an FP Journe, say through Watchbox is the, the largest dealer in pre-owned FP Journe. So we're most likely going to pay the strongest so long as we don't have, you know, 10 of the same model, even though there's not very many of each model out there. So, you know, taking these things into account when trying to find an online dealer. Also, think about starting a long-term long -term relationship. You know, that that term is kind of thrown around a lot. Um, we, we discussed it on the last podcast or I did with Jason in the past, um, you know, relationship is, you know, having some sort of comfort level with, uh, an individual at a, at a certain company who's going to be knowledgeable, who's also going to be looking out for your best interest, right? Because they want to do repeat business with you, right? Besides just wanting to be your friend, they don't want to do repeat business. So they want to give you good information. That's not bullshit. That's not going to leads you in the wrong wrong direction to buy something that you're never, you'll never be able to get out of or to sell something for far below market value. So, you know, think about that again. So just because the guy's paying you, you know, every last dollar, is this somebody that you want to continue to do business with in the future? If, if say, for example, you know, XYZ seller or buyer online is a, you know, they, you email them and they just reply back with an email offer. 
of say $5,500 for your watch, but then you call me and I offer you 5,200 and I say, listen, 52 is the best I can do. Right. And you say, all right, well, you know, I can sell it to these strangers for 55, but they don't sell watches either. So I don't, they don't, they're never, they're not going to have an incentive to try to earn my business realistically. Um, or, you know, Josh is offering 5,200, maybe he can squeeze it to 5,250 or 5,300. Um, but he's also has a huge inventory of watches so that, you know, the more business I do with this guy, the better I'm probably going to be treated because that's realistically how business works. And in a lot of ways, you know, your, your longest repeat customers are, you're always going to want to make sure you can take care of them the best you can. Right. So you might stretch a little extra there. You might go to bat for that person with your pricing team or whatever it may be. So those are things you kind of want to, want to, uh, you know, weigh out also. I'm not saying that you take the $5,200 $5, offer because it is certainly less, but make that, uh, or weigh that in your decision to do, uh, uh, to doing so, right? If the $300 makes sense to you and you're never going to buy another watch and this one was given to you as a gift, then take the, take the 55. That's what I would say. Um, but if you want to collect things and, and you want to build a relationship with a seller, who's always going to have good inventory, who's going to take your call or your text at any given time, you know, maybe you, you weigh that in your, in determining who you do business with. All right. Also finding out, you know, are these people legit, right? Um, you know, just because somebody has a website doesn't mean that they're going to, you know, send you money when they receive your watch or that they're going to pay you as much as they told you they were going to pay you, right? So for example, whenever I'm having a conversation, especially with a first-time customer, I always say, listen, don't take my word for it. I'm just a voice on the other side of the, uh, of the phone. And I don't want you to trust me just because we're on the phone. Do, do your research, look for bad reviews for Watchbox, find, you know, there's YouTube videos. So you can see that I'm actually a real person. I'm not just some scammer who's hiding behind a website. Um, you know, I have LinkedIn, you have my cell phone number, shoot, I'll FaceTime with you if you, if you want to, in order to make sure that you're dealing with the right person, all these things, uh, I feel like are important in terms of peace of mind when it comes to selling a watch or trading a watch. So try to find, in my opinion, try to find somebody who's willing to number one, acknowledge that there, there's going to be some, uh, peace of mind that's needed to, is going to be required in order to, to do this transaction. If, if you, if you ask them, well, how do I know you're going to pay me? And their, their answer is, listen, find out buddy or something like that. Or they don't, they don't want to acknowledge that that's a real concern Then maybe you don't deal with that person. Um, but if they, you know, if, if you ask them that question, how do I know you're going to pay me for this watch? And their answer is satisfactory. You know, we have a great reputation, you know, we're shipping insured through FedEx. You can call our insurance company. You can call, um, our other customers, you can see we're visible. We have whatever celebrity investors or whatever it may be, right? Um, to make you or, or to allow you to feel comfortable to ship a, a, a very expensive watch because that's how it's going to work with an online dealer. Um, you know, make sure that that they're taking their time um, and they're not uh, this. They're not um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're they're not going to be uh, dismissing your concerns, right? That's a that's a legitimate concern. How do I know you're going to pay me for the watch? Is totally a legitimate question and a legitimate concern. So make sure you have you, if you're talking to somebody online and make sure you can talk to them in the, because in the past, uh, like for example, I used to deal with Crown Caliber when they first showed up. They had some watches that um, I liked and I dealt with them. And I had a salesperson. I think his name was Tyler, um, who I dealt with directly. And you know, I prefer dealing with somebody directly. I want to be able to text you. I want to be able to get on the phone with you. I want you to you know help me with that buying process. Um, and then over time, it seems like that's kind of gone away. I think that guy was moved into photography, possibly don't hold me to any of this stuff because I have a terrible memory as it is. So, um, but, uh, you know, he moved out of sales and then now I think everything's done through the website. I don't believe you can talk to a salesperson live. I could be wrong about that. Anyone who's, who deals with Chrono 24 or has bought a watch from them say in the last, cause I haven't done it in over a year. So if you've dealt with them over the year or not, and I'm wrong about that, feel free to reach out because I, you know, would appreciate that information. But some, but the point is, some companies don't want to talk to you. They think that customers just want to go on and basically use, you know, buy watches like they do on Amazon. Which I'm certainly not in that in that um, category. I like to talk to somebody, make sure that I want if I'm sending money, it's to a real company, to a real person, person who has the watch, person who understands the watch person who's going to ship it in a timely manner. All these things are important to me. And the only way I feel comfortable is by talking to somebody on the phone. Um, and, and, you know, that's how I run my business from a watchbox standpoint, you know, people send in an offer and I want to talk to you on the phone about it. Right. Cause realistically, I'm not going to just take uh, like, 
you know, take your credit card. So say, you know, we take credit card by a link, a special link that we send to our customers. But if, you know, if we make a deal by email because you can't, you don't have time to get on the phone, I'm not going to ship that watch until I at least talk to you once on the phone. I need to make sure that you're, that you're not, you know, someone who stole this, stole this credit card number and is, is, you know, having me ship it to some random place that someone else is going to, you know, these are things, these are concerns um, for us as a company, but realistically it should be you, uh, your concern as a, as a, as a seller or as a trader of a watch, you know, talking to a real person, making sure you're dealing with somebody who's legitimate. All right. So other options. So it, it, say, say you don't, you don't feel comfortable shipping a watch and you live in a, in a metropolitan area. So like a, like a New York city, a Miami, like where I'm at now or Los Angeles, then your options might be actually a little broader than say, if you're somebody who lives in a, a bit of a smaller town, maybe you live in say like Northern Florida or, or some area in Kentucky or, or wherever, you know, you just, you just don't live in a, in a large um, metropo- metropolitan area then. Uh, but if you do, then you might have more options. You can, there's many more dealers. So, you know, in New York, Los Angeles, um, in Miami and Dallas, there's going to be jewelry exchanges that you can go to also, which is kind of like a flea market, but for watches and jewelry. So it's, it's basically uh, a large space that's kind of shared by a lot of um, people in the same industry. So like you're having uh, jewelers and you have watch dealers all share and they bas- basically each have a booth. Maybe they share a large safe or something like that to kind of mitigate uh, expenses. And you can go into one of these areas in, in Miami. They have the Seabold building, they have the DuPont building. They have uh, the Boca Jewelry Exchange, the Aventura Jewelry Exchange, where you can find a lot of these dealers. And they have websites too. So they might seem like they're a large dealer, but you go in, there's a little booth. It's fine. You know, this is this is certainly an option, especially when selling a watch. Um, and you can get an offer basically, you know, right there with the watch in hand, as opposed to a uh, an offer pending an inspection, which you know, is kind of what, how all the offers I make to all my customers that it, the watch has to be inspected before we confirm the offer. So you can get that done right then and there in person. Um, also, as the watch industry has grown, um, pawn shops have really gotten to the game. So in the past, pawn shops were places where you would, if you were desperate, you would go and just offload something, uh, offload a, you know, a watch for maybe, you know, 25% of its value at best. Okay. And, uh, but nowadays, you know, Pawn shops have a lot of cash and they realize that there's a huge trading market for watches. So you can really, really find some legitimate pawn shops that are paying for fair market value for the watches because they're able to sell them for fair market value. They don't have to sell them cheap. So that's also an option. Um, you know, and, and again, you know, make sure you, when you talk to them, they understand they're being, they're educated about, about the watches and they know what they're talking about before, you know, you take an offer from one of these guys or, or you make a trade with one of those guys. Um, and then also the last thing is authorized dealers. So uh, as the watch market has grown tremendously in the past, authorized dealers tended not to want to get into the pre-owned stuff. It was kind of looked down upon. It was like uh, dirty in a sense. Obviously our parent company, Godford Jewelers, got into it a long time ago. They saw the merit and saw that a lot of guys like to trade their watches. They don't want to just have a pile of watches that they no longer wear sitting in their house, you know, waiting to, to break or waiting to be stolen or whatever it may be. So trading uh, watches was important. So, uh, but nowadays it's, it's basically mainstream. Um, most authorized dealers will take a trade and whether they're buying them themselves or they're calling us. I mean, we have a large network of authorized dealers throughout the country who, when they're offered a trade, they call us, we make them an offer. Uh, and then they either mark up that offer or take it, um, uh, you know, take it, uh, at, you know, face value in order just to make the, make the deal. But they call us, you know, we have a, you know, hundreds of dealers who call us all over the country who don't like to deal in, in pre-owned watches. And they just, they'll take it and they'll just flip it to us basically, which is funny. I've had, I mean, anecdotally, I've had customers offer me a watch and then they go ahead and shop it, which I encourage actually, um, because I, you know, we stand behind our offers. We think that they are, they should be fair, fair market value. And I've had the same watch that I just offered on two days later, come through our portal again, but through maybe like our B2, uh, our B2B channel. So Mike Manjos and his team get offered the same watch with the same pictures. And, uh, and they say, Hey, Josh, it looks like your customer is shopping. I said, yeah, absolutely. So we give that, we give the dealer the same offer that we gave the customer. And then the offer usually comes in lower from the dealer. And then I look, I look like a champion, but realistically, you know, it's uh, all boats kind of come back uh, to Harbor, right? I guess. 
Um, but yeah, that, that is something that happens more often than not that the same watches kind of circulate throughout the dealer network because it is a small industry. So, um, so again, if you live in a town that's somewhat populated, you might have an authorized dealer for, for, you know, certain brands that who might take watches in trade or, or might buy them outright. Pawn shops are becoming more, um, relevant in this, uh, in our industry, but they're not, you know, they're usually also going to err on the side of caution too. So there might be a low wall offer jewelry exchanges as well. Um, and then these online buyers. So, uh, th- those are all going to be basically the, you know, B2C, uh, those are going to be you dealing with uh, a company. Um, there are some other options, uh, that are going to be basically B2B, but through intermediaries. So you have, you have eBay and you have Chrono 24, right? So, and you're weighing your options on where to sell my watches or how to sell them. These are the things, right? So I've already gone through all the, the professionals essentially. So now we'll talk about the platform. So you have eBay. It's been around forever. You know, you sold your Pokemon cards or your baseball cards or whatever on eBay a long time ago or, or your whatever junk you have in your house. eBay is a legitimate, uh, a legitimate player in the watch industry. At this point, they have probably sell more watches than anyone else on the planet. It, you know, goes through eBay, um, you know, uh, buyer or end consumer to end consumer and also businesses like uh, Watchbox has a very large eBay account. And we've been selling watches on eBay for a long time. So uh, you can go through eBay and you can also go through Chrono24, which has taken a, a quite a bit of business through, from eBay as well. So, uh, you know, these are the two main platforms where you can list your watch yourself, find a buyer and sell it directly. So what are the what are the upsides and what are the downsides? So the upsides are that seemingly you're going to be getting you know top value for your watch. Not always the case. There's a lot of low balls on eBay. I sell some of my collection on eBay, and uh, you know I'll post a watch for twelve hundred bucks, knowing that Watchbox just sold that watch for two thousand dollars, and that I, it should be an easy sale at twelve. And the first offer I get is two hundred dollars. This is very common. Um, you know that's. You know, that's just, that's just the way of the world, especially on eBay. You're going to get a lot of the low ballers and you're also going to get people who are going to be, I guess you call them time wasters. People who are going to ask you a hundred questions about the watch, ask you for, you know, a, a bunch more photos and then never make you an offer, disappear, never come back. That's, that's the downside uh, of, of eBay. Also, there's going to be fees, right? So eBay takes about 10%. If you, if you take payment through PayPal, it's another 3%. So there's going to be fees. And on top of that, one thing that most people don't realize is that as a seller on eBay, even if you mark your listing as does not accept um, returns, eBay will basically force you to take a return. Um, it's happened to me before, and uh, it's happened to me before where I've gotten the watch back, no harm done, and reposted it, it is what it is, and I think I was just out the shipping. Um, or it's also happened where I sold a watch, uh, the customer complained about something that was nonsense eBay told me just to take the return. I did and got an empty box back, right? Luckily, it wasn't, you know, a tremendous amount of money. It was probably about 800 bucks on like a Seiko that I sold. Um, And then my recourse was really just to file a police report with their local precinct, which is really goes nowhere for the most part. So um, those are some of the concerns selling on eBay, though the vast majority of watches sold on eBay, I think are smooth transactions. Um, You again, will have to pay that, uh, the eBay fee. One thing that eBay has done that's been pretty cool is they've created an authentication process, which means that if in, if you sell your watch on eBay and it's listed for over $2,000, even if you take an offer below the two, so long as it's listed at or above $2,000, the eBay will generate a shipping label, which will then send the watch to their authentication location, which is in Ohio. The watch gets, uh, you know, quote unquote authenticated. I guess they compare the pictures and the description to the watch itself, confirm that everything is correct, check the box and papers, all that stuff. Then they repackage it in a really nice package, which I like. They even give it a um, a warranty card with a photo of the watch, which is really cool too. Or I don't know if it's a warranty card, it's an authentication card, sorry. But it has a photo of the watch. It's like a really cool presentation. So as a seller, you could just literally throw your, your watch in, you know, in, in a any type of box, right? Uh, and then they'll repackage it for you, which is nice. Um, so that's that's an added benefit. Uh, but again, that's not always foolproof. I mean, for example, I bought a watch on eBay. It was an expensive watch, but it was listed as a manual wind. I knew it was automatic, said automatic on the dial, but the listing said manual wind. So that would have been something that should have been caught during the authentication process that it didn't match the listing. 
they would have at that point, I think they should have reached out to me or that's what their normal process would be to reach out to me and say, Hey, this is the, this is the case. Do you still want to go forward with the transaction? Um, they didn't do any of that. They sent me the watch. I kept the watch. It's fine. I knew it was, it was an automatic watch and not a manual wind. Um, but again, it's, it's not foolproof. Uh, but, um, you know, as a buyer on eBay, you basically, no matter what have you have recourse, which is nice as a seller, you do not always have recourse. Like I said, I sold a watch to somebody, they returned me an empty box and I was basically SOL. Um, so just, you know, I would say if you're selling through eBay, just check the amount of feedback that the customer has, the person who's making the bid. Also see if they have recent feedback because especially with like here at Watchbox, we'll have many times a day, somebody's eBay account has been hijacked. They make an offer on a watch and then um, and then it gets you know, flagged for being uh, like a fraudulent offer because what happens is somebody makes an eBay account 15 years ago. They did a bunch of business up until 10 years ago, but haven't done anything for five years, this somebody else hacks into their eBay, starts making offers and buying expensive watches because they're easy to move. They're very liquid. Um, and then, you know, you might be SOL. Maybe the payment gets charged back or whatever it may be, right? So be careful to protect yourself uh, if you're going through these platforms that they are a viable uh, form of, of selling your watch. Chrono24, I don't have a lot of experience on Chrono24. I know Watchbox as a company does a ton of business on Chrono24. It seems like it works pretty well, though uh, I believe the fee is also 10%. Don't quote me on that. Um, and oh, one thing that I didn't mention is that both Chrono24 and eBay will automatically add sales tax to any watch sold on eBay. This is because of a, a Supreme Court ruling that happened in 2019. You can look it up yourself. It was Wayfair versus... North Dakota, I think, just type in Wayfair tax um, ruling and you'll see the company Wayfair uh, sued the state of whatever it was, North Dakota, um, saying that that they needed to remit, uh, or no, sorry, the state, the state sued the company saying that they needed to remit sales tax even though they didn't have a location in their account or in their state. Went all the way to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court ruled that that the state actually had a right to force them to do so. So now I believe it's um, most companies, including Watchbox, have to collect uh, sales tax in almost every state. Um, eBay and Chrono24 blanket collect sales tax for every state based on where the watch is going. So that's something else you want to factor in when you're buying or selling on eBay is that you're, the buyer has to pay sales tax. All right. So we have uh, we have professional sellers online, professional sellers locally. We have platforms. Now, the last thing we'll talk about in terms of selling or trading your watch as an option will be forums, right? So they have uh, plenty of forums, plenty of places that have been developed over the years, um, to, uh, communities where, buy, where you can buy and sell watches. So uh, Rolex Forum, Watch You Seek, even Reddit has a robust um, uh collector forum and places and guidelines to sell watches. And, and realistically, this might be one of the safest and best ways to go, but it doesn't come without a cost, which will be your time, right? So most of these, um, most of these forums, especially the advanced ones like Rolex Forum and Watch You Seek, who've been around for, you know, a decade or more, they uh, require you to have a certain amount of posts within a certain amount of time in order before you can ever even post a watch for sale. And then there's guidelines in doing so. And if and still, if your descriptions look crappy or your pictures look bad, you might get flamed relentlessly and nobody will buy your watch. So, um, but the upside is that you'll probably get fair market value, which should probably be anywhere between wholesale and retail if you're if you're talking to a professional seller, right? So that the foreign price should be slightly below the like what they what uh, company that's going to um, guarantee and warranty the watch would sell a watch for, but it should be more than what they should, they would be paying for that watch. So there is a, you know, a slight difference and with every brand, it might be different, right? So for a steel Rolex, that difference might be 150 bucks. So it might not be worth it for you to put in six months worth of work in order to be able to post your Submariner. But if you have a platinum JLC minute repeater where, you know, it's a $300,000 retail and you paid 150 grand for it and you're trying to get 120 for it, um, and a dealer offers you 60, but you realistically think you can get that over 100 for it, then maybe spending that six months, you know, uh, uh, you know, endearing yourself into a community on a watch forum and learning all the, the ins and outs in order to be able to post that watch and truly find a buyer for it might be the way to go. Because that 
that's a that's a huge difference between um you know what the offer is and what you might be able to get for it from a from a, a personal collector so that's the thing when you're selling on the forums or you're or trading on the forums you're going direct to another collector usually educated folks usually people who have the right expectations in in the sense of what the watch is worth and people are usually going to be taking care of these watches also the recourse while it there's certainly more risk, I guess, because you don't, you're not going to have like an escrow service. You're not going to have a PayPal or an eBay or a company in between you. Um, usually, especially if you're dealing with a, a buyer or a seller that has a long history on that forum, it's going to be worth something to them. They're, they're not going to try to throw that all away because they made one bad deal. They try to rip somebody off. So usually it's going to be a, a safer way to go. But again, it comes at the cost of your time. So you have to figure out, you know, if you're a lawyer and you're charging 250 bucks an hour, and it takes you, you know, 30 hours in order to uh, spend on these watch forms. And it's not something that you do for fun because, again, if that's your hobby. If you like going on these watch forms anyways, then, then that's the way I'd go. That's your best bet, honestly, to get the best value for the watch. Um, but, uh, but again, it's going to take – it's going to come at the cost of your time. Uh, time is, for most people, very valuable, especially if you can afford these types of watches. So if you have a full-time professional job, it might not be your best option. But – if you enjoy it, if you spend your free time on, you know, scrolling through these forums anyways, then I'd say register, start making posts, start, you know, reading the the posts that are online, seeing which ones sell and sell the quickest, and then, you know, basically duplicate those posts for your watch and, and sell them that way. So again, to recap, we have online professional sellers, we have local professional sellers, we have platforms like eBay and Chrono24, and then we have the forums, which is going to be truly collector to collector. I mean, there are some like pseudo dealers who try on the forums, and honestly, even Watchbox will post their watches on the forums too, but we don't do, uh, professional sellers don't do so much business on those forums. People like to go on the forums to deal with, you know, uh, more collectors because they don't want to have to, they don't want to deal with people who are truly just, just in it to make a profit like a professional seller would be. All right, so that was a uh, that was a long rant that, uh, but I think we discussed a lot there in terms of where to look to sell your watches, right? So again, the mindset is you're three to five years into collecting, you have some watches that you need to sell, and what are your best options? Where are you going to go with these, right? Or trade? Okay. So the next thing I wanted to talk about is how do you value your watches, right? So you find the the you find the option that best suits you in terms of your comfort level and your time and your education level on watches in general. So you decide you're going to sell it to a watch box. You're going to sell the watches on eBay. You're going to go to the forums and post them. So how do you know, number one, what you should ask for this watch? Number two, what offers you should, or number two, what offers you should accept, right? So pricing a watch um, for a, you know, for a, uh, a retail customer might be a little bit difficult. It can be a little confusing because, you know, you might have, you know, a watch that's going to be not super liquid and you go on, you go on Chrono24 and you see the watches posted for well higher than what you paid for the watch, right? So you get excited and say, oh, look, this watch went up in value. It's not always the case, right? Um, so how do you know that you're getting a fair, you know, how do you set your own expectations to make sure that, you know, what is the real trading value of this watch? So number one, if you have, if you bought your first few watches from, you know, somebody like me or, or uh, a professional dealer and you have a relationship that, you know, you trust this person, then call them up and ask them, right? And say, hey, Josh, I see this watch. You know, I paid 30% off of list for it and, um, you know, it's a $20,000 retail and I see them posted for higher than list right now. There's not many postings. You know, I'd like to get, you know, what I paid for this watch out. Is that possible? And, and my response might be like, no, sorry. You know, this is a watch that trades pre-owned for less than what you paid for it new. Uh, I understand that there are some postings that are extremely high, but, you know, those, there's no real regulation in this industry. And um, a lot of times those postings are of watches that the dealers don't have. They are at a price point in which if somebody really bites on that price point, then they can go ahead and find that watch, right? So it doesn't represent the true market of the watch. Um, and, uh, and there's also, you know, you have to, uh, have to account for margin and overhead, right? So if you're selling it to, to somebody like us, you know, we got to make between that 10 and 25%. And I'll explain why there's a big swing between, uh, be, you know, in that margin as well. But um but, you know, that's something that has to be taken into account as well. And, uh, you know, just because you see a few postings of a watch at a high price point doesn't mean that that someone's willing to spend their hard-earned money on it. 
that price point, but it's a good place to start, right? So um, Chrono24 doesn't show, show sold listings, uh, but eBay does. So eBay sold listings is not a bad place to look also. So if you have multiple sold listings of your watch in the last, say, 90 days on eBay, you can have, you can get some idea of what, you know, either you can sell it for on eBay or what uh, a professional seller should be able to get for that watch. And then you can back out whatever, you know, you think is a fair margin or whatever it may be. So sold listings on eBay is a good place to check. Um, these are all data points that you need to add together. Um, you know, you can also look at, a, you know, how much professional sellers that you know actually stock watches are listing these things for. So I get that all the time. Somebody comes to me and says, hey, you have this watch listed for X dollars. I'd like to get, you know, just subtract, say, 500 bucks from that price. So I'd like to get that. And I say, well, listen, I appreciate that. Unfortunately, I have six of these in stock. I only have one posting, so we post one at a time. I basically have a year and a half worth supply of this. So at this point, my offer is going to be, you know, Y. And I know you want X. So there's some other options for you. You may be shopping around to some dealers that maybe don't have as many of these watches in stock. That's a good option to go or, you know, post it on eBay or post it on a forum, um, you know, for slightly below what you see us asking for this watch because we guarantee and warranty it and see if you get any bites. So, so you know, these are ways to check the market value of a watch. Um, also, one thing that you have to take into account, and this goes into kind of the margin thing also, is liquidity, Right. So we'll go back to that platinum JLC minute repeater. Say you have one of these and, you know, they only made, you know, uh, JLC only made 500 of them. They maybe only sold 200 of them. Um, they had an extremely high price point. You bought it at 50 off thinking that you got some tremendous deal. And when you go to sell it, you know, you're asking 120 because you think, oh, you know, I paid 150 for this uh, new, uh, you know, gray market or whatever it may, may be. Um, you know, I'll take 120, get most of my money back and I'll move on. This should be a great deal for anybody who's looking to pay. And then you call a guy like me and I tell you, listen, you know, the watches is, is very rare in the sense that there's not many posted. We don't have any data on this. Um, we don't know if we could sell it for 150 again. We don't even know if we could sell for 120. We don't even know if we can sell it for hundred. Um, so we're going to come in at say whatever, 60,000 bucks. Right. And that feels like a tremendous low ball. And it realistically might be because, it's a blind item, right? And you also have to weigh against the liquidity of that watch. So, so say that watch, maybe a buyer for that watch only comes around every two years, right? Um, so it's not just that we're spending the 60000 It's that we put 60000 aside for two years, right? And what's the cost of that money? How many, at this point, you have to compare it to like steel Rolexes. So how many steel Rolexes can I buy and sell in that two-year period? And, you know, can I make up you know, what kind of margin can I make on those, uh, on those watches, even if it's a far smaller margin than I would make on selling a watch like this, if I can turn that money, you know, 50 or 60 times in that two year period, probably going to be safer and make more money doing it that way too. Right. And the cost of servicing, because that's the other thing, when you sell a watch to a dealer who has to warranty that watch, if it's not, you know, a new Rolex under its uh, manufacturer warranty, then we have to service that. So realistically, I buy that watch. It takes me two years to sell. Then I have to warranty it for two years. So realistically, I own that watch for four years, right? And I don't get any enjoyment out of it. I have to buy it, photograph it, post it, sell it to somebody who's going to get uh, going to get that enjoyment out of it. And I have to back it up if something happens to that watch. And the cost of service might be tremendous. So liquidity is a big factor in terms of, um, you know, what kind of sale, what kind of money you're going to get from a dealer specifically. If you're selling it direct to another end consumer, then obviously liquidity is not that important, but it certainly will affect the resale value of a watch. If, if there's very few buyers looking for that watch, then most likely it's going to be what they call buyer's market. So uh, you're going to have to, you know, just take as many offers as you can and get as close as you can to your price, but probably take something less. So that's, you know, that's, that kind of sums up the, uh, you know, how to value your watch. Essentially, hopefully I, I, that made sense. I mean, in the past, it used to just basically be a percentage off the original retail, but at this point where watches are selling for well above and then, you know, uh, through from Rolex, AP, Jorn, and Paddock, and then other brands that are much more liquid than they used to be. And it's really based on every model. So a more mainstream model is going to be very liquid and it should be easy to find someone who's going to pay you strong for that watch as opposed to, you know, a watch that doesn't have, you know, 
much liquidity and you're going to have to just kind of just take whatever offers you can get. So going into that, going into buying a watch and, and asking those questions ahead of time, finding out, hey, if, if I were to sell this back to you, do you know how much you would buy it back for? It's not always an easy question to get an answer, but I'm happy to always answer that question. So, you know, asking that ahead of time is good for uh, setting expectation. But, it, but again, if you own that watch for three years and you go to sell it then, market may have changed. You know, we deal basically on a 90 day timeline. So, um, you know, or some watches maybe go far, maybe back a little bit farther, but for the most part, we're looking at things from 90 days back and, and to determine what the, uh, what the market is on the watch. So if you find a listing from 2011 and saying this watch, look, this watch sold for 50,000, you know, I'll sell to you for 40. And I'm like, well, listen, man, I'll buy it for 15. Cause I don't know if I can even sell it for 20, you know, uh, uh, time is certainly relevant in terms of, um, the selling, selling price of a watch again, cause no one's going to want to sell me, uh, a steel Daytona at 2011 price either. So it goes both ways. Alrighty. So we went over, okay, I'm going to go ahead and sum it up again. So we went over, um, where to, where to sell or trade your watches as a now a more mature collector at this point, you know, you, you've already, um, you, you understand the watches itself and now you're starting to get more into the business of watches. So who did, who to deal with, how to determine if you're getting far, fair market value, how does a trade work with a dealer? How does it work with a, with a private seller? How to use eBay, Chrono24, the forums, um, all these things. So th this should be somewhat helpful to you if you're trying to, you know, figure out all this stuff. So the next thing I want to talk to you about is um, service. So, you know, again, you're three to five years into your collecting journey. You've been buying watches for that amount of time. And now you have to consider service because that's a service interval or the suggested service interval for most of these watches you buy. So number one, do I really need to service my watches every three to five years? That's a good question to ask. Um, if I do think my watch needs service or it's broken, who do I go to? That's another good question to ask. And also, I guess it's in this in the same um, subject or same genre is, you know, aftermarket, aftermarket parts or aftermarket service parts. So like <clears throat> if I want to change a dial for a watch or if I want to change a bezel, can I go aftermarket? What is that going to do to the value of my watch? Or should I even do that? Is it going to destroy the watch in general? So number one, should I service my watch every three to five years? Well, I would say more and more watch brands are coming out with longer service intervals because they have longer warranties. So Rolex, I'd say a lot of Rolexes, you could probably wait 10 years to service them. Um, but on the flip side, I have guys who say, oh, you know, I've had this watch for 15 years. It still runs well. I don't need to have it serviced. Well, so uh, like my mom's a dentist and she always says, you know, preventative care is always cheaper than emergency care, right? So <clears throat> if you, if you have your watch serviced and say it costs $800, um, and you know, you have that done say every seven or eight years, for example, or you wait the 10 years until the watch stops running completely, which may mean a broken part in the watch. Um, or, you know, some severe damage to the movement, it's, maybe it's going to cost you two, three, or four times that say seven or $800 that you could have spent on preventative, uh, maintenance. And that's, that's really what it is. When you hear someone say service, for the most part, it's preventative service. Routine maintenance is preventative service. It's going to be re-oiling the watches because again, you have a little metal machine with very delicate metal parts that are all touching each other in order to, in order to, you know, calculate the math that it takes in order to move the hands at the right rate and whatnot, right? So that's what you have, a little mechanical math machine that needs to be well-oiled. And if it's not, teeth on gears break, springs pop, um, you know, uh, there's all sorts of issues that can pop up in a watch that has not had its proper maintenance. Also, you have to consider um, that gaskets are generally made out of plastic, or sorry, uh, rubber. Rubber dries out after, after a certain amount of time. So if the service interval is three to five years, that might be because, not because the movement will dry up and stop at three to five years, but the gaskets might. And now that watch is no longer water resistant. So you might have a great running watch that looks great. You've never dropped it, no issues. And you've had it for five years and you, and you haven't had service and you jump in the pool and all of a sudden it's filled with water. And you're like, well, what the hell? This watch is a piece of junk. What did I, you know, these people are crooks. They sold me a watch that doesn't, it's not water resistant. Well, it was when you bought it. But now that the seals have, have dried out, around the crystal and the crown and the case back, they've all dried out and you jumped in the pool and there's enough pressure to, to move one of those, uh, you know, dried out gaskets out of, out of the way. So there's no longer a seal. And now that watch is filled up with water. 
And that say $700 service that would have replaced those gaskets now turns into a $3,500 replacement of the movement. Okay. So these are things to consider um, when you're, you know, when you're thinking about how often should I service my watch? Also, the question would be, who do you service it with? Well, in the past, I felt like it would, it was much easier to find a local watchmaker to take care of this. Parts were a little bit easier to get. Um, you know, a lot of these companies would just have parts accounts with everybody because it was a, it was a profit center for them to sell, to sell to maybe they, maybe the requirement would be, you have to have a certain certification as a watchmaker. You can apply for an account. Now you can order these parts and you can do, you know, quote unquote factory service offsite. Nowadays, it's become more of an in-house game. Uh, most brands, um, only allow watches to be serviced in-house. They don't sell parts, uh, factory parts to, uh, the dealers, like, you know, we used to have service accounts as Watchbox used to have service accounts with a lot of these brands. And a lot of the brands just decided, hey, we're no longer going to have service accounts anymore. If, you, if your watch needs service, it's going to come directly to us. Okay. It's profit center. Um, but it's also, there's peace of mind that goes into that as well. You know, a lot of times you are sending it back to the watchmaker, the watchmaking team who, who, who built that watch. So there's a nice peace of mind that people are familiar with these watches. They're also doing it all the time on the same models, right? So if you send it, if you take your whatever, Panerai 233 to your local watchmaker, he's maybe never seen that movement before. Maybe he's only seen three in his life. Whereas if you send it back to Panerai, these guys are trained and they're dealing with these movements every single day. So they can look for certain types of wear that are going to be indicative of what needs to be done with that movement. So while the cost might be more for sending it back to the factory, it might also take longer and you might not have the best, you know, the best service because, you know, we can, we can all admit that, you know, the Swiss are not the most customer service oriented, but they are, there's attention to detail when you send it back to the brand for the most part. And there's going to be a service warranty that, you know, they're going to stand behind. Um, so for me personally, as much as I hate to say it, I'd say send it back to the factory, you know, every, every three to five years or five to seven years or seven to eight years or whatever it may be, send the watch back to the factory for a full, um, for a full service. Also, when you're going to sell the watch and if you don't want to sell it to a dealer like us, you want to sell it privately through eBay or for, through a forum, having those service papers is a tremendous peace of mind. Um, I, for, in, in fact, I bought my Panerai 233 uh, from an eBay seller who had the watch just serviced through, through Panerai and that gave me a, a tremendous peace of mind. I didn't have to worry about the watch in terms of its authenticity because they're not going to service a watch that's fake or... Uh, that I'm going to have to, you know, it has a service warranty. It's usually one year or two years through the factory, but it's also, you know, the watch hasn't been neglected or hasn't been treated um, poorly. You know, there's, there's usually a higher level of standard when it goes to the factory for service. All right. What about refinishing? Um, a lot of people ask me, should I have the watch refinished if I send it for service or should I have it refinished locally if there's scratches? Well, say most modern steel sport watches can be refinished you know, if done properly with the proper tools and by a trained watchmaker or a refinisher, it can be done up to like seven or eight times, right? Like if you have a, if you have a Submariner that you wear gently, but you get, you know, scuffs on the bracelet in the case and you want it, you want to restore it back to original, um, or the original look, you can, so long as there's no deep di uh, dents or dings and the, the watch or the, the refinisher is using the proper tools and the proper methods, you can have that thing refinished back to new probably seven or eight times. Um, if you have uh, like a neo vintage or a vintage watch, should you have it refinished? I'd say no. Um, but should you, you should, you should be sparing on the amount of refinishing you do on the watch because it does take material off the watch, except for essentially platinum, which if done with the correct tools is reshaping that metal back to which original state, but not everybody has those tools also. So if they're finishing a platinum watch, sometimes they are taking platinum off that case, which can affect the value uh, for an end consumer in the end. Um, so we're finishing, I'd say, you know, be careful. I, I like having watches that are a little bit banged up, um, you know, if, as long as it doesn't have anything too crazy. Like one time I dropped one of my watches and I had like a terrible lug, a terrible dent on the lug and it just drove me crazy. I felt terrible. I actually had it laser welded or laser filled. And it, um, and it made me feel a lot better to have that watch uh, taken care of. But that was like a catastrophic dropping of the watch. And like, I felt depressed for a week after I did it, all that stuff. So I had to get, had to get that off the watch, but like my Panerai, it has a ton of little scratches. The bezel still has a mirror finish, but it's definitely more dull than when I bought it. 
Um, you know, the, the lugs are a little bit banged up here and there, but it's not, it's normal wear. And, you know, it's, that's part of the, the owning process too. Um, so, and, it, and if you're selling your watch to a dealer, someone like, like Watchbox or one of these larger professional dealers, do not send your watch for servicing or finish before you do that. Because a lot of times our cost to get that done is going to be less than yours. And we'll buy the watch for basically the same price, whether it needs a slight refinish or not. So that's one thing that a lot of people do. Like, oh, the watch is out for service because I wanted to have a service before I sold it. Well, yeah, I would say try to sell it without having it serviced and being refinished. And if you can't at that point, then send it in for service and refinish. Um, so a rule of thumb. And then the last thing I want to touch on in terms of like the service world is aftermarket parts. So, um, you know, I have a lot of people ask me, you know, should I change out, you know, any aesthetic parts of this watch? So for example, you buy a Rolex Datejust and it has a black dial and you want to have a white dial and you don't want to go through the hassle of actually trading the watch. And you like this watch specifically, and you know that you can buy on eBay, you can buy a dial or have it swapped out. Even if the, the part is supposed is, is originally a Rolex, you know, should you do this? Is this bad for the watch? Is it going to affect the value? Um, same thing with like a bezel. So say you buy a watch. I had a friend who bought a, who bought a Rolex with a smooth bezel and wanted a fluted bezel and, um, you know, didn't want to trade out the watch in, in total and found somebody to do it for, you know, what I think was like $1,500 or something to, to swap out the, uh, the bezel might even be less than that. So, you know, is it something you should do? Um, will this affect the resale value of your watch? Will it destroy the watch in general? Is it bad for the watch? So I'd say yes and no. Number one, it's your watch. Do whatever the hell you want with it, right? That's number one. Um, number two, though, if you want to have the watch serviced by a f uh, at the factory, a lot of times they will not service it without swapping the parts back, right? So they'll either charge you to put the correct dial back on the watch, correct bezel back on the watch, or they'll tell you that they will not do it unless you, unless the correct uh, dial and bezel are on this watch, right? So a lot of times you cannot get factory service if you've swapped the dial out or the bezel out, or any of the parts out, even if they are, you know, originally from Rolex. If the watch wasn't sold like this, a lot of times they won't touch the watch. Number two, having a bezel swapped out is very different than having a dial swapped out, even though it seems like it should be simple. The dial is actually a very delicate piece uh, of the watch. It's going to be very thin. It's going to be very delicate. A lot of times they have what's called dial feet that are very delicate, and they sit on top of the, of the, um, the movement, they also have to remove the hands um, uh, when, when changing the dial. So these are very delicate pieces too. So a lot of times you'll have somebody who goes and gets their, their, their dial swapped out. And then later on, they take a look at it and they realize the hands are bent. The dial is scratched. Um, you know, you find out you have a, a broken dial feet. So now the dial is, is moving in the actual, in the watch, which is a nightmare. So I would recommend against changing dials. Changing bezels though, for most watches, and it depends on how the build of the watch um, works, right? So some bezels are literally just screwed on over the crystal and don't really have much effect to the movement or the water resistance of the watch. Some bezels are directly connected to the movement. And um, if you remove that, can absolutely compromise the water resistance or the functions of the watch. But for example, a date just, if you swap out the bezel, just make sure you get the original bezel back. So when it's time to sell that watch, you can bring it back to factory specs. You know, essentially no one's of the wiser, right? You don't have to explain that you ever had it swapped out. Hopefully when uh, the, say you took the smooth bezel off and put on the fluted, say the smooth, the fluted wasn't glued on. You don't want them to glue it on there or use any type of uh, weird tactics that might, you know, cause some issues in the future. Um, and they can just be, you know, just swap back out. Um, and then the other thing is straps, straps and bracelets. I totally 100% support using aftermarket straps or, or, uh, or bracelets. I have no issues with that. A lot of times guys will take off. So you'll buy a Rolex and you like to wear it on a strap. You'll take the bracelet off, put it back in the box, wear it on an aftermarket strap. It actually preserves the original bracelet. So that when it's time to sell or trade that watch, you have an unworn bracelet. It's actually a selling point. It's not a bad idea. Same thing with strap watches. I have guys who buy Panerize will take the original strap uh, and buckle off the watch, put it in the box, get an aftermarket from, you know, one of the numerous aftermarket strap makers and wear it on that. So when it's time to sell the watch, you don't have to go deal with, you know, getting a new strap on the watch or have it, having to deal with guys asking for extra pictures of the strap because they want to see the wear on it or whatever it may be. 
So aftermarket straps and bracelets, absolutely a go. Bezels, be careful. Dials, I'd say don't do it. All righty. Well, I think we're running up uh, on the hour here, and I think I have uh, discussed most everything, right? I'm not going to summarize this again because I've already done it like five or six times. But um, if uh, I think this should be helpful for anybody kind of in that, you know, uh, more mature collector phase, guys who maybe have collected for a few years and now are thinking about starting to trade their watches too. Um, so yeah, if you if you like this episode, if you're listening this deep into the episode, number one, you're a champion and I love you. I appreciate you uh, sticking with me this long. Hopefully you learned a few things. If you listen to it uh, out of spite because you think I'm an idiot and don't know what the hell I'm talking about, please send me a message and let me know that I'm wrong and that I should correct myself because I'm happy to to be self-reflective and, and understand that maybe I am, you know, I have the wrong view of things or what, whatever it may be. Um, but uh, if you want to contact me directly, you can do it through Instagram at Mr. Thanos at M-R-T-H-A-N-O-S. Um, our corporate account for Watchbox is at Watchbox um, on Instagram. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel, a tremendous YouTube channel at Watchbox Studios, where you'll see some videos uh, or you can see the trading desk. Um, live episodes that we did for about two years. There's about 80 episodes there. You can go catch up there with me and my buddy Jason Main um, and a few other guests that we had on there. Uh, Tim also has shows on Watchbox Studios. Mike Manjos has a phenomenal weekly show called The Market Wrap, which I I tune into every week. Um, it's a great way to, to you know see the market side of the watch and watch industry and see what's hot, what's trending and whatnot. Um, Watchbox Reviews is uh, basically Tim's channel. And that's a great place to see hands-on reviews of every single watch we have. Also check out at Tim Masso. I think it's Tim underscore Masso, I believe on uh, Instagram. He will go into the vault almost every day and find watches that have certainly not been posted yet and make hands-on reviews for them, for you there. So it's a great way to see what inventory has not even been posted yet. So like the hot inventory that might sell before it gets posted can make it to Tim's Instagram before it makes it to the website. It's a good place to check it out. And uh, while Tim doesn't handle sales directly, if you reach out to him, he will forward you over to myself or one of the other few guys that, that are on his team in terms of the sales team. Or you can just screenshot the watch or forward it over to me directly and say, hey, Josh, what is this? What's this watch? How much are you selling it for? What are the details? I'm happy to talk to you about it because my main function for Watchbox is buying, selling, and trading. So again, thank you so much, guys. Appreciate you tuning in. Uh, and I will see you next Tuesday. Adios.